All right, you guys ready to get in the Word? Yeah. All right. Why don't we start in the best place that we can always start and pray? How about... Where's Adam at? There you are, brother. How about we have Adam pray for us? Amen. Well, tonight's going to be an extraordinary night. We're going to examine the book of Jeremiah, and unlike our previous five weeks, we're only going to do one chapter tonight. So this is going to allow us to dig into the character of Jeremiah and the nation around him while briefly exploring a few eschatological themes that we're going to introduce as they introduce themselves in the text. And we can assure you that the lessons you learn tonight regarding Jeremiah's experience with the Lord will be very, very practical to us in this current season of our body. In fact, we believe that the lessons we will learn tonight, it is going to alter the course of your lifelong call. We believe that tonight is going to have an impact on the way that you the way that you live according to the calling God has put on your life and we believe that in the years to come perhaps you might remember what you learned tonight and it'll help you get through some of the things that come along the way. Amen. So needless to say are you interested yet? Yes. Well, we are interested to dig in as well. So uh, with that being said, We've got one chapter, and we've got some time to do it. Why don't we start with Linton reading through the chapter, and then we will dig in. Then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go, go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. And they ask you, where shall we go? Tell them. This is what the Lord says. Those destined for death, to death. Those for the sword, to the sword. Those for, south, for starvation, to starvation. Those for captivity, to captivity. I will send four kinds of destroyers against them, declares the Lord. The sword to kill, and the dogs to drag away, and the birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth to devour and to destroy. I will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth, because of what Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Who will have pity on you, Jerusalem? Who will mourn for you? Who will stop to ask you? Ask how you are. You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep on backsliding, so I will lay my hands on you and destroy you. I can no longer show compassion. I will winnow them with the winnowing fork at the city gates of the land. I will bring bereavement and destruction on my people. I will make their widows more numerous than the sand of the sea. 
at midday, I will bring a destroyer against the mothers of their young men. Suddenly, I will bring down on them anguish and terror. The mother of seven will grow faint and breathe her last. Her sun will set while it's still day. She will be disgraced and humiliated. I will put the survivors to the sword before the enemy declares the Lord. Alas, my mother that, that you gave me birth, a man with whom the whole land strives and contends. I have neither lent nor borrowed, yet everyone curses me. The Lord said, Surely I will deliver you for a good purpose. Surely I will make your enemies plead with you in times of disaster and in times of distress. Can a man bring iron, iron from the north, or bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give as plunder without charge because of all your sins throughout your country. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know, for my anger, my anger will kindle a fire that will burn against you. You understand, O Lord. Remember me and care for me. Avenge me on my persecutors. You are long-suffering. Do not take me away. Think of how I suffer reproach for your sake. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me. And you filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? Will you be to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you repent, I will restore you, that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you to rescue you, rescue and save you, declares the Lord. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the cruel. Man, oh man. Jeremiah chapter 15 has some density to it, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. Man, we've got the condition of God's people Israel in this chapter. We've got the condition of God's chosen mouthpiece in Jeremiah in this chapter. We've got the internal wrestlings of the prophet, what's going on inside of him. We've got his personal conversations with God and we have responses back from God. We have the Lord's compassion and encouragement to his chosen mouthpiece. We have the Lord drawing out things out of the people that he's using and making sure that they are in a place where they can be used and utilized by him. We have all kinds of exciting things going on in this chapter. So you guys ready to get into verse 1? Yes. yes. Let's read verse 1, Linto. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. This is a little bit of a rough patch here in verse 1. This is kind of a rough start to the chapter. I mean, are you guys, are you guys hearing this? Yeah. Moses and Samuel? Those are some of the most impactful men of God in the whole entire world. Yeah. Moses and Samuel. These guys, they, they've got some interesting similarities about them. Yeah. Moses <laughs> and Samuel, they were both able 
to avert wrath from God's people in very special ways. We're going to get into that in a moment. But just think about the character of Moses and how he was able to lead God's people through a desert to the edge of the promised land and to keep everybody together. Think about what Samuel did starting a a company of the prophets. Think about what Samuel did getting discipled from a very young age in the priesthood and being a counsel to kings and an advisor to the kings of Israel. These are powerful men of God. And the Lord looks at Jeremiah and he says, hey, stop what you're doing. Even if Moses and Samuel were right here and they were praying to me about the, the condition of these people, you cannot stop the wrath that is coming upon them. You cannot avert their punishment. They've gone past this possibility and God is saying, my wrath is coming whether you like it or not, Jeremiah. You can see this reflected in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 16. It says, but they mocked God's messengers. Look, this passage is going to show us exactly how they got to the place where they got. First of all, they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets. They didn't just mock his messengers. They hated the words of his messengers. They hated the words of truth that were coming to them. And the third aspect, they scoffed at his prophets. They made a mockery of the message of God that was coming into their ears. Until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. That's the season that we're standing in right now in Jeremiah 15. There's no remedy for God's people. (laughs) And the righteous prayer of a man just proves that if he's praying for that, he's not in line with the will of God. God says, stop it. Stop praying for these people. Their destiny is set already. I am bringing my wrath. Look, with this in mind, these are intense subjects that we are going to fully reckon with. And we're going to learn how to stand as Jeremiah does to find strength and hope in the Lord. As we go, I want to point out to you some details about Moses and Samuel that I'm sure you have not considered before. There are a lot of great men in the Word of God. We have Elijah. We have men like David. We have men like Daniel that are going on around the same time as Jeremiah, except a little, little later on. Why Moses and Samuel specifically? Now remember, this is not Jeremiah speaking. This is the Lord speaking. The Lord said, even if Moses and Samuel, which means in his mind, they're different than everyone else. I'm going to read to you out of Exodus 32, 30 through 32. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Saints, how is atonement made? It's made by sacrifice. There's a cost to be paid. A lot of men have made wretched things out of this about negotiating with God, but the Peshat says... Perhaps I can make atonement. Perhaps I can pay a sacrifice on your behalf for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. Man, he's not sugarcoating it, is he? They've made themselves gods of gold. But now, 
please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The last part of 32 clearly illustrates what he meant by make atonement. He meant make atonement, which requires a sacrifice to be made. And he's putting himself up before the Lord as that sacrificial lamb. Now, if you've studied Moses' life even a little bit, he was an amazing man, but he was a flawed man. Definitely was no perfect lamb. And yet, there's something of his heart that is divine here. Moses was a divinely placed arbitrator between God and man, an arbitrator that made intercession for the people. God selected him, brought him forth for this specific purpose. Now, his intercession didn't invert consequence entirely, but it did allow for a number of that generation to repent and become something. The consequences of sin still existed, but his intercession paved a way for future hope. In Jeremiah's days, we have reached the place where even if they repented, consequences are still coming from sin. But what's worse than that is that they're refusing to repent. They're getting a whipping either way, but they could choose to give glory to God, if you remember from our previous week. But they were unwilling. Now, in any case, God has brought his people to a place where national chastisement is necessary. It must still be visited upon them no matter what happens. This is because God is refining his bride, and he's going to ensure that there is lasting change for the posterity of his treasured inheritance. Now, many of you, or your child, because it's easier for us to imagine, have had immediate repentance as consequence is coming. But without the consequence, the sin is easily repeated. We're at the place where lasting change is needed for the posterity of his treasured inheritance. Moses was a divinely placed arbitrator that allowed for a remnant to be saved. God is specifying this because it's unique in all of history for a man to lay down his life for a people. He wasn't a perfect sacrifice, but he was a willing one. Let's check out Samuel in 1 Samuel 7, 2 through 6. 1 Samuel 7, 2 through 6. Many of you, you can see that uh, Moses was a divine arbitrator, divinely placed. But how many of you kind of struggle when you see it in Samuel? How many of you can point to a scripture and say, oh yeah, this is where Samuel did the same thing Moses did? Well, I want you to look at this passage. Verse 2, it was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim. And all the people of Israel mourned, not moaned, mourned, and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you're, if, Listen to that if. If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, man, that ought to be in every one of our evangelistic presentations or whatever you'd like to call it. If you are returning to the Lord, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. You see that progression there? They're seeking after God, and Samuel's saying, hey, if you are really seeking after God, almost like the physical expre- expression is not enough to let Samuel know that they're actually turning the, to the Lord, so he ups the ante. 
If you're doing this, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and commit yourselves and serve him. And after you've done all those things, he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Folks, that is the gospel in one message right there. And Samuel had it down. He didn't have to preach an hour and a half or he didn't have to convince them or twist their arm. He just told them exactly what they needed to do. Now look at verse 4. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. That's pretty effective, isn't it? Come on, Acts 1. You're going to go through outhouse apologetics. This is it right there. (laughs) Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. The question is still up in the air. After you've done all that stuff, then I'm going to intercede. But I want you to catch something about Samuel here. Samuel was like Moses, a divinely placed arbitrator. God put Samuel there for a purpose to arbitrate between two parties, God and Israel in this moment. And he was an arbitrator that made intercession for the people. And I want you to catch something here. God listened to Samuel. God actually listened to Samuel when he interceded for the people. That's pretty incredible, huh? How many of you would just like to intercede for for a group of people and God just listens? That makes Samuel very important and very prominent. The events in Samuel point to a demonstrable need for a perfect arbitrator, though, because this is a cycle. This keeps happening. So this is pointing to Moses, Samuel, and pointing to a further arbitrator that would be a perfect messianic arbitrator. But throughout the Tanakh, we see examples of men. Aaron, David, the Shofetim. We see these examples who stood up in the gap for God's people. But I want you to know something. Moses and Samuel were the most prominent figures up to Jeremiah's day in God's mind. When God thought of these arbitrators, when God thought of the most prominent in God's heart and mind, the two that were most prominent were Moses and Samuel. We want to show you this. This is also repeated somewhere else in the scripture. And it happens to be in the writings in Psalm 99, verse 6 through 8. Listen to this. This is amazing. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called on his name. In the first verse, in verse 6 of this passage, we have both Moses and Samuel together. It says, they called on the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them from the pillar of clouds. Wow. They kept his statutes and the decrees he gave them. Verse 8, O Lord our God, you answered them. Yeah, if you understood what verse 6 was saying, then the them there, you would also understand to mean Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. Those three men. So the Lord God, you answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God. Though you punished their misdeeds. So you mean to tell me that the Lord answered the arbitrators that were between the Lord and his people? He answered them, and so he went past them and he forgave the sins of his people because there was an arbitrator present? Don't you think that that's an incredible pattern 
an incredible layout for exactly what the King of Kings did when he came into this world? Yeah. There were men that were imperfect arbitrators, imperfect sacrifices for the people, but that paved the way for God's Son, His perfect Son, Yahweh's perfect Son, Jesus, the Messiah. Revelation 13.8 said that the King of Kings had this plan from the very beginning, before the creation of the world, that the Lamb who He sent was slain before creation even occurred. See, the Lord God always had a plan for an arbitrator. Oh, come on. Yeah. He always had a plan for somebody perfect to step into that gap, to arbitrate for his people, and to bring redemption to them. This brings us to 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. I love John and his writings. So that you will not sin. It's fairly plain. Easy to understand. Yeah. But if you do sin, if anybody does sin, because he knows you, <laughs> we have an advocate from the Father, Jesus Christ. Amen. I would like to just take a minute and say, praise God. Praise the righteous yeah. one. Now, there have been advocates in the past. There have been advocates in your life, and that's the reason you're standing here, if you're honest. That's true. But they weren't the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You remember the language with Moses earlier? Let me see if I can make atonement. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Wow. First and foremost, he is the advocate and arbitrator for the sons of Abraham, but also for the whole world us Gentiles. We've been included in a great promise that is able to preserve us along with them. It began with Moses, the law, and we saw it in Samuel and the prophets. And the greatest expression was found in Messiah, Jesus, the son of David. He was and is the living, breathing embodiment of the scripture, showing us how to live just like the writings due to this day. Yeah. It's an incredible concept that's being demonstrated here. God knew that an arbitrator was needed. In Moses' day, he placed him there because he wanted a man to be there to arbitrate. During Samuel's day, he called this boy from before he was born because he knew an arbitrator was needed. And he placed him in that day because an arbitrator was needed. Now, Something different is going on in the days of Jeremiah, though. Now, in our case, just as in the days of Jeremiah, every individual has a choice, choice to make about how we are going to relate to the king of kings. But the reality is national calamity is still coming. Remember what we read in 2 Chronicles, that there was no remedy? National calamity is still coming on the land in Jeremiah's day and in ours. And it can't be averted. There is no way around it. Repentance can save, but it does not eliminate the consequences of sin for us or for them. When God has decided to act, he will bring it about. You guys remember the good figs from last week? Yeah. Come on, do you remember the good figs? 
The good figs were those who recognized their guilt, not the ones who had punishment averted. They were the exiles who he considered good figs because they gave glory to God in their circumstances. There's a heavy reality, though. There's a day coming when nothing and no one can rescue from the wrath that is coming. Not Moses, not Samuel, like in Jeremiah's day, and not even Jesus himself will help you. When wrath is a certainty and there is no remedy. I want to read to you Revelation 6, 15 through 17. I'm going to read it and then let my brothers take over. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave, every free man. Sounds like we're talking about every level of society. As far as I can tell, there was nobody that escaped from kings to the slaves. They hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Now, if you believe the word of God here tonight, these things are still coming. This is the tribulation. This is the wrath of God that will come upon the entire earth. And it's going to be so bad. I want you to think about it. It's going to be so bad that every level of society... Kings, princes, generals, think David Petraeus, the rich, think Bill Gates, the mighty, and every slave, every free man is hiding in caves and rocks. And what are they crying out for? They're crying out for, it's so bad, they're crying out for mountains to fall on them. That's pretty bad, isn't it? Pretty bad to make you look at a mountain and say, fall on me, I need you to cover me, but from what? The face, just the piercing and gazing face of the lamb, the wrath of the lamb. And then it ends with the question, who can stand it? Well, the astounding truth is that no one can stand it. This is the wrath of God that is coming upon the earth and no one can stand it. No one can stop it. No one can avert it. In fact, even Jesus has to submit to the father For this father's right timing in all of this. It is coming and no man can stop it. And it is at this point that the lamb. Think of that white gentle lamb. (laughs) That pure and innocent lamb that was led to the slaughter. Quiet. Like a sheep before its shears. That lamb or that advocate has now become their adversary. The advocate. The one that was... The one that was pleading at the right hand of the Father has now come to a point in saying, hey, I've pleaded long enough. You haven't listened. I've got nothing else for you except for the wrath that I tried to get you to repent for. The advocate has become the adversary. The lamb will no longer reconcile men back to God. This is just like Jeremiah's day. When he's saying, even if Moses and Samuel were standing amongst you, I would not stop. Even if they were crying out, I still would not stop. And this at this point, God's saying, look, nothing can stop this. You no longer have an advocate. Judgment has come upon the land, 
just as the prophets foretold, and it cannot be averted at this point. This is the point where the cycle of chastisement has, has cycled its way throughout the entire world and throughout the ages where you are at the final end and nothing can stop it. Now, that's incredible, isn't it? That if you avoid the Savior, then all you have left is the wrath of the Savior. But I want you to catch something. There's a reason why it comes to this point. There's a reason why a judgment comes that cannot be stopped. And it's not God's fault. It's not God's fault that it gets to this point, even though they will think it's God's fault. Did you catch the last part of verse 1? Let's put verse 1 back on the screen. Even the Lord said to me, then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. What does that imply? Let them go. Well, it would imply that they are already wanting to leave and God's just saying, hey, I'm not going to stop it anymore. They are already going. The Lord is simply giving them over to what they already wanted at that point. He's giving them over to the death that they have been walking in because they have been sinning, not repenting, and that sin in that moment, sin has started to produce death at the moment that God says, let them go. You have to understand that that sin doesn't always start in an immediate death. It keeps going like the cycle of James to where it eventually leads into death. But that is what, what the people wanted all along. And God's just saying, hey, I'm, not, I'm, tired of, I'm tired of trying to stop them at this point. I've tried to correct them. I've sent prophets and messengers. They have rejected. Now there's no remedy for what they want. So my only option is to give them what they want. Man, we have to be careful with what we want, right? Justin just pointed this out, but I feel the need to reemphasize it. He's not punishing them. He's letting them go and experience the consequences of what they already want. They're his people, and they're persisting in something that will have a result, like choosing to run a stop sign over and over again. You're not being punished by God. When a dump truck hits you, it's just the effect of the sin yeah. you are persisting in making. Exactly. Yeah. Consider our next passage. Our next passage is Deuteronomy chapter 29. And we're going to start in 18. Guys, listen to this and, and listen to how it relates to let them go from verse 1. Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today, whose heart turns away from the Lord our God, to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. You see, there's, there's a deeper issue beneath the surface here that we need to dive into together. It's when you persist in, in doing something that is against what God wants, against the standard of God, you are constantly trying to separate yourself from the will of God. You are constantly trying. I just, want to, I just want some freedom. I just want to get out there and do something. The Lord will allow you to get to the point where you are gone. But there's a reason why. It's because he doesn't want that bitter poison to contaminate the rest of his people. 
That bitterness is poison that when brushing up against the congregation of the saints, when brushing up against God's people, it is something that other people can ingest. It's like smoke in your ears. It's like something that contaminates the body and the soul. And so eventually the Lord's like, hey, I cannot keep you around anymore. You've got to get out of here. You really want this that bad? I'm not going to stop you from running away anymore. I'm going to let you go for the sake of the remnant that wants yeah. my word. Yeah. I'm going to let you, let you go because I still have a plan for them. Israel is God's choice vine. And he will preserve it at all costs. Yeah. No bitter root will be allowed to grow in the midst of his preserved nation. You got to let it go. Yeah. Go on to verse 19. When such a person hears the words of this oath, he invokes a blessing on himself and therefore thinks, I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. This will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. Wow. All right, so let's, let's talk about the body of Christ for a moment. Let's talk about us Gentiles who've been grafted in to Israel. That's who we are. We're Gentile graftings. What do you think the Lord considers when you are persisting on going your own way and you've been counseled by the priesthood of God in this place over and over and over on the same issues and you refuse to accept Righteous counsel from the priesthood. Mm. And you want, you're just like, man, I just want this. And no righteous counsel, no word from God or his messenger is going to stop me. What category do you think you're in danger of becoming? This is the category that we're talking about. And you know what's scary? It's one thing whenever you hear the counsel and you just outright deny it. But you want to know what's even scarier? Is when... The righteous counsel is coming and you can't hear it. It just goes through one ear and out the other and you just do what you want to do anyway. Oh, I thought the pastors told me to do what I already wanted to do. Ah. I misunderstood that. But I talked to the pastors. <laughs> Guys, we're, this city, this neighborhood, all around us are full of churches of compromisers and people that have gone their own way to the point where the Lord's just let it happen. He's going to let you just be satisfied and content being where you are because you don't want to move forward with me. You don't want to know the truth. Hey, the Lord has saved most of us from that kind of environment. Hey, I don't want to go back there. Yeah. I don't want to be a part of that kind of compromised environment. That's what the Lord redeemed me from in the first place. That's what got me to this place where priests actually cared about the standard of God and actually loved me enough to speak counsel into my life that was life. I'm not going to go back there. So when I get Come wise on. counsel, when I get the word of God into my life that is different than what I'm doing, I am going to grab a hold of it. I am going to hold it with all of my might and I am going to put it in practice with all that is within me because that is how I become the man of God that God has called me to be. Go to verse 20. The Lord will never be willing to forgive him. Mm. His wrath and zeal will burn against that man. All the curses written in this book will fall upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. The Lord will single 
him out from all the tribes of Israel for disaster, according to all the curses of the covenant written in the book of this law. It is for the preservation of the tribes that these people are singled out. That this particular man who persists in going his own way, he's singled out from the tribes so that the tribes themselves are not polluted by this bitter poison. Unfortunately, in Jeremiah's day, we're talking about the majority of the tribes being singled out for yeah. judgment. The majority of the tribes going into captivity and experiencing the wrath of God. But this would preserve the totality of Israel's future. Come on. It would produce the righteous remnant who wanted truth, who went through repentance, who understood the judgment that was all around them, who understood, I'm going to go through punishment, and I deserve every bit of it. But I am decided that I am going to repent, and that will propel me into being the righteous remnant that God desires in the first place. Amen. Come on. Let's consider Proverbs 19. So we are 36 minutes in and are about to embark on verse 2. You still with me? We hadn't lost you. You're not in bombshell mode after hearing Deuteronomy. Can you learn something with me from Proverbs 19? And I promise to be nice and only allude to issues. Does that sound like a plan? We're not going to talk about bitter roots like crippling fear or pride that cause you to repetitively fail in the same sense. Or offense. Or offense. Or a desire to be married. <laughs> or a problem in the marriage that you have. We're not going to discuss bitter roots along those lines. Because we're going to kill those roots and it's not going to be us anymore. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't feed, baby. Proverbs 19, 18. Discipline your son for in that there is hope. Somebody say there's hope. People. Yes. Discipline is what spurns on hope. It is our best chance at a future that is holy, that is righteous, that is free of past failings. And it is the same way for children and for disciples. Yes. For lost family members. Yeah. Verse 19. A hot-tempered man must pay the penalty. All right, Acts 1. Is this Peshat? Is this Ramaz? Or is this Duresh? It's Peshat. He must pay the penalty. Now listen, we're a bunch of sacrificial, loving saints who want to see people do well. But the plain language of the text says that he must pay. Yeah. Man, consider that astounding truth. That us altering it, that us messing with the process, is actually circumventing God's word and is not good for the person or us. Failing to allow the weight of sin, the weight of the consequences of sin... To fall on a man actually perpetuates the problem. It goes on to say, if you rescue him, you will have to do it again. Ooh, wow. And do not be a willing party to your son's death. The Lord understands this quite clearly. That's why he's saying, let them go. I'm not rescuing them this time. They need to see what happens when you lose your temper. Because I've done it again and again too many times. Man, we need to get this message. We need to get it in this church. We need to get it with our brothers on the left and right. Sometimes you're just going to have to let them experience the consequences of really stupid decisions. Yeah. You know who else is going to have to get it? This Jeremiah. As we go through the text, he's wrestling with this oh, yeah. and realizing, yeah, you have done this too many times and they keep doing it again. You will let them go for their own good. 
And it's a really normal human thing to struggle with this. And yet, the answer to a repetitive sin problem is to eat the fruit of the sin. Yep. Yeah. And the world understands this in business. You mess something up and they make you pay for it. You learn not to mess it up again. Yep. Verse 20, listen to advice and accept instruction and in the end you will be wise. Listen, I'm not going into a word study in Proverbs. We're teaching Jeremiah. But another way to translate this verse is to be wise to the very end. As in, when you stand before the throne, when you completed your calling, when you listen to advice and accept instruction to the very end of the age, you will be considered wise. Man, I don't want to be wise in this life and foolish in the next. Whether you're 60 years old or 20, listening to instruction, accepting these things, will prove you to be wise. Yes. Jeremiah, by the end of tonight, will accept the Lord's instruction. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. That will be the astounding truth that is driven in both to Jeremiah's soul and ours this evening. The Lord is sending them away, but is in the direction that they want to go. This is like the father letting the prodigal son go his own way. He's not punishing him with pigs. Pigs are the punishment of his own choice. Man, I've heard some swine as of late. The nation was destined to become sons of God, and they will. But they're choosing a different destiny, much like the prodigal son, and he's letting them go after it and experience their choices. The Lord's plan for national Israel will stand. It's just a question of who will comprise it. They will be Israeli. They will be holy. They will be a part of the one true vine. But men have choices as to whether or not they will play the part of righteousness or the part of wickedness. And God will give you in greater quantity what you ask for, no matter what you ask for. If you want the part of wickedness, he will drown you in it. If you want the part of righteousness and you embrace correction, long for it, run for it, you will be made wise and more righteous than you thought you would ever be. And if you're struggling and warring against sin now, take hope. He will make you more righteous than you believed was possible. If you're hiding sin right now, sitting in a wine press, so to speak, sitting in fear and timidity about the future, he will give you more fear and timidity than you thought was possible. Now is the time to stand and to move. If you were to take a gander at Numbers 11, verse 20, which we are not, you would find out that quail comes out of the nose of the Israelites because they desired other food than what God had promised. Their wickedness came out of their nose. It got to a place where it was impossible to hide because God let them go. Now, if you were to take a look at Psalm 45, though, you would see that a love for righteousness caused a man to be anointed with divine joy. Man, even his wife was clad in gold. (laughs) Kind of divinity. She was like a queen. And you want a righteous household? You need to start by loving righteousness so intensely that it anoints you with joy. When we have a joy that cannot be broken, that will not stop, it will affect our family and then our nation. Now, I think it's best we get to verse 2, Brother Linton. Help us out. And if they ask you, where shall we go? Tell them, this is what the Lord says. Those that are destined for death, to death. Those for the sword, to the sword. Those for starvation, to starvation. Man, I don't know if you caught that, but verse 2 says that there were those destined for death. 
Well, I don't know if that messes with your theology a little bit. Because, I mean, there's this whole thing about Calvinism and all that stuff. Was Calvin right about this? Did God destine some Israelites for death? Did he destine some for the sword? That's a real question. You know, I think, though, that the answer is to not jump to Calvin, who lived about 1600 A.D. And I'm pretty sure when we read this, I concur, Justin. I think that's a good idea. Well, it happens. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that when you read this, when you heard that, you immediately recognized that Jeremiah was quoting the book of Revelation, right? No? No? That's not oh, what you thought? Okay. Well, if you want to know where that is, it's Revelation 13, 9 through 10. We're messing with you, church. You're learning to read through the right end of the funnel. You answered correctly. Don't be scared. You got it right. It was a trap. Revelation 13, 9 through 10 says this. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. Do you see the similarities between Revelation and Jeremiah's day? We're going to dig into that a little bit more. In Jeremiah's day, the Lord was giving the people over to what they wanted. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? That would mean that some wanted death. That, mean, that would mean that some wanted the sword. Some wanted starvation. Some wanted captivity. And you ask, well, what kind of people would want that? Yeah, turn on the, turn on the news whenever you get home and you'll see those kind of people. They were being given over to the things they wanted. In Revelation, God is giving the entire world, though, over to their own evil desires. In Jeremiah, it's the people of Israel. Like Jeremiah, these are the days we're called to stand in, holding his word while the world tries to kill us for it. They're trying to kill us, and yet they're the ones wanting death for themselves. And the proof of that is them choosing sin every time over righteousness. And they will, in the end, get their due punishment. But in both scenarios, Revelation and Jeremiah, I want you to notice something. There's an ancient, hostile spirit, almost like an ancient hostility at work. Can you guess what that is? Well, in Jeremiah, it's Babylon. Who is it in Revelation? Babylon. Babylon. It's an ancient, hostile spirit or mystery of Babylon at work. People called to be like God are being given over to the full manifestation of their own way. They're wanting these things, and the final result of it is God is going to say, fine, I'm giving you over to it completely. Now, I want you to check out the last part of the verse in Revelation, because this is what pertains to Jeremiah, and this is what pertains to our time. Are you ready? This calls for patient endurance... And faithfulness on the part of the saints. So what does it look like in Jeremiah's day? When men are being given over to these things, God is literally saying, you didn't want the destiny that I gave you, so I'm going to give you a new destiny, and it's called death. And how does Jeremiah stand through that? Well, it's going to have to be the same way we are going to stand through it in Revelation when we are patiently enduring everything, the judgment coming on the world because we are in the world but not of the world, and we are going to have to be a part of it, and it's going to be faithfulness on our part. Now, I want you to catch that. Don't, do you think 
John, writing the book of Revelation, he's meditating on the book of Jeremiah. That's exactly what's going on. He's not meditating on Calvin. He's meditating on Jeremiah. And he's knowing. John is knowing. He's looking into the future. He's seeing maybe a group like you and I. And he's knowing how we have to respond based on how Jeremiah responded. They, were, they, writ this, they wrote the same things during the same type of events. The truth is the parent prototype to the book of Revelation is the book of Jeremiah and the Babylonian captivity. So if you want to better understand the book of Revelation, where do you go? Jeremiah. When reading the book of Revelation, understand that John had Jeremiah in view. And we're going to get into a few more similarities as we go on on that theme. That's that's important right there. That John, when he is writing Revelation, when he's receiving that, he is looking back at Jeremiah. That should be comforting to you that we are on the right track. We're looking back and we're trying to go as ancient as we possibly can on this route, on this path. Yeah. John looked back at Jeremiah. He read through verse 2 that we're reading. He saw those four aspects and he added something for our benefit. Mm -hmm. You see, the same composition was there in those verses. But John said, oh, how did Jeremiah last? How How was Jeremiah one of those guys that reached the end of his days as a wise man? Oh my goodness, Jeremiah patiently endured. Jeremiah was faithful. I need to write this into the Holy Word of God. He wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, looking at Jeremiah's life, and he said, because Jeremiah patiently endured, because of his faithfulness, that's how he was righteous at the end of this. I'm going to make sure that the churches understand this. Now, a couple millennia later, we're standing in the same exact place that Jeremiah was and that John was. What are we to do, church? We need our patient endurance to rise. When we are being opposed, when we are being afflicted, we need our faithfulness to rise up in those situations. That's the only way that we're going to make it through it. So praise God that He's putting us through those situations right now so that we can practice, so that we can be tested, so that we know what approval of God feels like in this season. Let's continue in 3 and 4. Now, as we go into three, we're going to build on verse two. So keep those four aspects in mind. And let's read three and four and see if you begin to see a pattern forming. I will send four kinds, kinds of destroyers against them, declares the Lord. The sword to kill and the dogs to drag away and the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth. Because of what Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. I will send four kinds of destroyers against them. Wow. Isn't that interesting? We had four kinds of something or another in verse 2. We had four kinds of destroyers in verse 3. I think that there is something beginning to add up. Something's beginning to stack up here. Now, if we're reading in the prophets right now, and we want to learn about what Jeremiah is building on, what part of the word do we need to go to to figure that out? We need to go to the Torah. 
We need to go to the first five books of the Older Testament to see where Jeremiah's knowledge base is coming from for this pattern. So let's go to Leviticus 26. Hey, let's hand these out. Uh, who wants to read? Rob, you get verse 16. Nolan, you get... That's 26.16, Rob. Nolan, you get 26.22. JJ, you get 26.25 and 26. Then we're going to have Hayes. You're going to read Ezekiel 14.21. Paul Rosales, you're going to get 2 Chronicles 6, 24 through 28. And that's it. All right. So we're going to work through these in decent succession. We're not going to take 20 minutes in between them. So when you have your Leviticus scripture, should be three of you, say there. There, there. All right, we got three. Start with verse 16. Sudden tear, wasting disease, fever, destroy, lose your sight, life drain away, plant seed in vain. Does that sound like a honeymoon to anyone in here? <laughs> All right, why don't you get verse 22? I'm going to have wild animals eat you and your children. Mm. Who's got 25 and 26? Did you catch the sword? Yeah. Keep going. Ooh, when you hide, I'm going to send plague in the place you're hiding. Okay? <laughs> Alright, so you've run away because there's a sword. Where you're hiding, there's plague, and now there's no food while you're hiding. Just finish out the passage. Listen, prophecy is a pattern. Remember, Jeremiah is like a spiritual artist painting a picture. I want you to catch the themes that are coming here. You're going to find out that there are different nuances in many verses, but the same basic content is used over and over again about this place in judgment. Consider a contemporary of Jeremiah called Ezekiel. <laughs> Who's got Ezekiel 14? How much worse will it be when I sin against Jerusalem my poor dreadful judgment? How many? Four. Sword and famine and wild beasts and plague to kill its men and their animals. Sword, famine, beast, plague. Yeah, so we're seeing the same thing repeated over and over. Sword, famine, beast, and plague. Can you see those same four things that God told Jeremiah, I'm going to send four destroyers? It's a pattern that is repeating throughout. Four destroyers. Now we're going to go to 2 Chronicles 6.24. Oh my goodness, that's Law Prophet Writings Older Testament. Wow. Yeah. This is a pattern. <laughs> In 2 Chronicles 6, this is Solomon. And Solomon was wise, knew the Torah, he was a son of David, and he understood from the law that this day would happen. And listen to his prayer. In verse 24. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and confess your name, 
praying and making supplication before you in this temple. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring, bring them back to the land you gave to them and their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land, or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when enemies besiege them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come. So you notice those things. When famine or plague, when blight or mildew, natural occurrences, when locusts or grasshoppers, wild animals, when enemies besiege them, like the sword. You see the same four elements over and over. And this is Solomon's prayer. And he knows Leviticus 26. So he's saying, when this happens, Lord, be prepared. If you want to study further, 2 Chronicles 7, 13 is God's answer. And he says in the answer, the enemy's sword, when famine, when drought, when destructive nature, when plagues comes, then I will respond. In each iteration, there are four major themes as their relationship with God degrades. God sends four major things every time that judgment is occurring. Those themes surround largely, not exactly in every situation in every scripture, but they largely revolve around premature death. God is going to send a destroyer that will cause death before its time. The next one, that they will be surrounded by violence on every side. In fact, in Jeremiah it says, when you go out into the... The country, when you go out onto the road, you will be surrounded. The next one will be some form or shape of economic suffering via plague, via drought, anything that God can use to determine that. And then the next one is that they will live in oppression, i.e. they will go into exile. They will be captives in another land. And that is repeating throughout all of these occurrences. Now, Leviticus 26 is the foundation and it promised these things would be the result of disobedience. Continually rejecting the word. Now I want you to think about it. This is God saying, I'm going to send these things. God is saying to the people, continually rejecting the word results in a premature death. It results in lashing out against others. It results in a famine, a famine on your land. And it results to being given over to something. You know, this happened in Israel's history throughout all of the ages. But you want to know who else this is true about? This is true about you as well. You see the same four elements every time God is trying to get someone's attention and they are rejecting every attempt. When, they, when you continually reject the word of God in your life, it will result in the premature death of your calling. Your calling is at stake. You may have good things in store for you, but if you reject the word of God in any situation about any subject in your life, it will result in the premature death of your calling. You know what happens after that? I've seen it every time. It results in lashing out against others, that violence. Someone that has had their calling die, they usually don't go, oh man, I'm afraid my calling has died, and then they start to repent. No, they start lashing out against their brothers in every single way. And then that results in a famine of God's word to that individual, to that person, a famine of revelation. 
And then at the end, they are given over to diseased thinking and a depraved mind. They can no longer turn back. All they think about is sin and what they want. Now, in verse 2, we read earlier, they have a destiny to death. That can correlate here. The premature death of a calling. They had a destiny to death. This happens when you reject your God-given destiny and you begin to lash out. You starve yourself of God's word and you are completely overcome with sin. This is the process of someone headed down that road. Now, we can clearly see this displayed in the personal lives of so many, can't we? Have you, have you known people that this has happened to? God forbid this happens to any one of us. If you notice any of those steps occurring in your life, it's time to rethink things and reconsider what you are doing. But this happens in the personal lives of many. And in result, it results in the life of a nation, that same cycle, the premature death of a, of a nation's calling. That is because individuals make up a nation. That is why we're at where we're at in America is because we're made up of individuals in this cycle, and it's the same with Israel. Now those nation cycles, are you following? Individuals make up a nation. Nations make up the entire world. This cycle plays itself out throughout the ages amongst the entire world because it's happening in individuals that make up nations that this is occurring in, and you see the same cycle going on in the ages according to history in the Bible. Look, I'm going to inject a personal note that's... Not a part of the notes, but I get to do that. We have a brother that is not sitting in this room currently. I have watched people that were family. I had a man that was an elder in this church that was the closest thing to a righteous grandfather that I had. That is not sitting here today, not because they're doing good works somewhere else in the name of Jesus, but because this cycle played itself out in their life when they refuse to heed correction. You know what they're doing? Sitting in a depraved, diseased mind right now. We've got a nephew sitting over there right now. And thank God he's got a righteous mother. Lest any of us think we're exempt from this. I want you to think about very real personal examples that are tangible, that are a little painful for me to suggest. But the reality is not one of us are safe from this cycle or this process. We must choose willfully to stand with God and with his word above our own opinions, our own preferences, and no matter what it costs us. In fact, you can see this displayed in God's word all the way from the beginning. So I hope what you're hearing from my brothers is that there are several levels of this cycle that you can easily see. And of course, it starts with your daily interaction. It starts on a daily life kind of basis. But it graduates from there. It doesn't just affect the individual. It's a cycle that you can also see in the lifetime of a generation. This is what we see in the book of Jeremiah. We're experiencing this cycle over and over in this specific generation that God is judging. But it doesn't stop there. There's an even greater layer. You can see this cycle through the centuries. You want to see it through the centuries? Yes. Genesis chapter 3. What happens? We have a spiritual death and eventually a physical death 
as the result of sin in a garden. By the time we reach Genesis chapter 4, there's warfare and there's a sword between Cain and Abel, between two brothers. Now, as you walk from 4 into 5 and 6, you see that wickedness had progressed to the point where only one family in the entire world was able to hear and obey the voice of God. There was famine of God's voice in all of the land. Yeah. And only one family was experiencing that. Yeah. God says, we're not teaching the book of Enoch, but they were eating each other during this time frame. Yeah, that's exactly right. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 7, the entire world was deluged in judgment and could not escape that judgment. They, we were, had a flood. they were given over to it. This pattern, it expresses itself cyclically throughout the rest of the scripture in reference to the judgment that will come upon the entire earth. The reason that we're highlighting it now is because it's going to happen again in the last days. It's going to happen again in the book of Revelation as those events are playing out. You will see it. A few examples that are the parent examples of Revelation. The ones that are the predecessors. The shadow and type for what is to come. Daniel chapter 7 and the four beasts in that chapter of Daniel. This is a part of that same pattern. What about Joel chapter 1 and the four types of locusts that you see? If you look into that, you will see the same four components in Joel chapter 1 that are present. Yep. What about Zechariah chapter 6? In Zechariah 6, we got four chariots and four horsemen yep. that are bringing these same things and God's judgment with them. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 6, we have four horsemen again and four seals that are enacting the same four components at the end of time. Man. This cycle of death, violence, and lashing out, famine, and being oppressed in judgment, it's a cycle that will play itself out in the end of the ages. And the result of this cycle will be occurring in every nation on the earth, not just Israel, because as you guys know by now, as it goes with Israel, so it goes with the rest of the nations. We'd like to point out that in Revelation chapter 7, so in 6 we had the four horsemen and the four seals, and we had that ultimate culmination of this pattern. In the next chapter, Revelation 7, you can see a pure special remnant. 144,000. That is a remnant of Israel that is pure, that is consecrated, that is set apart by God. That should remind you of Jeremiah. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremiah, he was a man that did not get married. He, he, he did not bear any children. These 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7, they're the culmination of what we see in the book of Jeremiah. They are pure. They have saved themselves for the Lord alone. So essentially, just like the book of Jeremiah is being played out in the book of Revelation on a massive scale, you would do well to think of those 144,000 as 144,000 Jeremiah's. That they will be there while this is going on. They will be in the land. How incredible is it? That's right. The Lord <laughs> has always had and he always will have his remnant. And we are going to choose to be a part of that remnant. 
Amen. It always starts with repentance. It always starts with just and true are your judgments, O God. And it always requires faithful endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints to get there. Amen. Amen. Now, before we transition to verse 5, we've got a slide to throw up because we know that was a lot of information for you guys to swallow. This slide is going to give you a visual of what we just went through. This first one is the pattern that we're talking about. Premature death, surrounded by violence, economic suffering, and living in oppression are those four components that you can see starting in the Torah, and you can see all the way through the book of prophecy in the Newer Testament. Let's go to the next slide. The next slide are the three levels that you can see this on. You can see it in your daily life, with, uh, which Judah enumerated for us earlier. You can see it in the lifetime of a generation, which Treaster enumerated for us before that. And you can also see it through the centuries, where we talked about Genesis 3 through Genesis 9, and what happened in those chapters. There are three levels, and you can see this pattern of four in every single one of those levels. So look, we're at an hour and eight minutes, but was it not worth it to change the way that you read Joel, Daniel, Revelation? You quite literally can't pay for what we just gave you, and it's as simple as understanding the pattern of prophecy. You don't need a mystical understanding. You need to follow the ancient path and understand what the original audience would have learned. And it informs the way that we live on a daily basis. God's word is special. There is nothing else like it. There is no work other than the word of God that can both tell you what will happen at the end of the age and what is happening in your life right now. Let's pick up in verse 5 and get all the way through 7. Make a progress. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Who will mourn for you? Who will stop to ask, how are you? How you are? You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep on backsliding. So I will lay hands on you and destroy you. I can no longer show compassion. All right, you got pause for a second. We've reached the place where there is no remorse, nor is anybody going to feel sorry for you because they know what you did. Okay? <laughs> yeah, you understand that we, we've reached the place where this is supposed to be embarrassing. They're his precious people, but he's letting the entire world see him severely chastise his son. And it serves as a warning and a testimony about what he will do in the future. Get verse 7. I will winnow them with the winnowing fork at the city gates of the land. I will bring bereavement and destruction on my people, for they have not changed their ways. I'm glad to hear him say the word winnow. I know winnow may sound bad, but in light of what we just heard, winnowing is actually a fantastic thing for him to say in this moment. I'm going to read to you Matthew 3, verse 11 through 12. It's about John the baptizer, or immerser if you prefer. I generally prefer immerser. (laughs) I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, I love you in your youth group camp. But in context of winnowing, which is what we're getting to, being baptized in fire is not a good thing. So you can run around yelling fuego as much as you would like to, but it's still not a good thing. He's going to baptize in the spirit of holiness. He'll give you what you want. And with fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor. This is first the context of Israel, and then the rest of the earth, because the whole earth is his. Gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Fire, fall down. Yeah, no thank you. Both John the baptizer and Jeremiah were living in days when judgment was looming, even if men didn't recognize it. The winnowing fork was in the hand of God, both at the entrance of the gospel and in Jeremiah's day. And what was John the Baptist's message? Repent! Repent. Why? We're standing in dark days right now. Dark days in Jeremiah. And yet, there's an astounding truth that comes along with that. The kingdom of heaven is near. Take heart. His kingdom is coming. And it is coming in blazing fire. It will come with reward and with recompense. His Holy Spirit will be poured out and his fires of judgment will be as well. Now, there's something I want you to notice here. As we just read, his winnowing fork will be in his hand. You guys remember where he's preaching this? He's preaching over by the Jordan. He baptizes with water for repentance. Well, he's baptizing people in the Jordan. Now, a little lesson from Israel's geography that you might find helpful that to get into Israel, you had to cross through the Jordan. It's a natural gate, so to speak. If you remember in our text this evening, in verse 7, it said, I will winnow them with a winnowing fork at the gates of the land. And it'd be so easy just to sub in the verse in the gates of Jerusalem or in the gates of Hebron, but that's not what it actually said. In the gates of the entire land. So both John the Baptist... And Jeremiah are prophesying, speaking about a winnowing fork in God's hand at the gate to the land itself. The Jordan was a gate into Israel. It had to be crossed, and many times in Israel's history, it was the point where men found life or death. To cross over was life. To not be allowed to enter because you were winnowed out was death. The words of Jeremiah are having the same effect in his day and time. A choice has to be made. Either you will repent and accept the coming son, or you will be winnowed right out of his kingdom. Man, those were the days of Jeremiah and the days of John the Baptist, and I'm pretty sure his kingdom is coming soon for us as well. It's almost as if people who are called of God, who've experienced his miraculous, who've been rescued from Egypt, many times are going to come to a gate where they have to decide how they will respond. Church, I want to tell you that he's making us more fruitful than ever. And along with the harvest comes the winnowing fork. And his winnowing fork is something he specifically prophesied to us about about three, four, maybe five months ago. In every generation, there will be a holy, special remnant of Israel. Those who have crossed over from death to life, no matter how difficult the journey was, and they preserved the precious word of God inside of them. Let's pick up in verse 8, and this will continue to build. More numerous than what? Oh, that's interesting. Keep going. At midday, I will bring a destroyer against the mothers of their young men. Suddenly, I will bring down on them anguish and terror. Man, he's going to make the widows more numerous than the sand of the sea. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? 
Didn't God tell Abraham, look at the stars? I'll make your descendants as numerous as the sand of the sea. Boy, this is, that was an incredible miracle that God would do that. But now we see a miracle in the other direction. God is using the same language that he spoke to Abraham. And he's saying, hey, your descendants, they're the sand of the sea now. Now I'm going to make your widows as numerous as the sand of the sea. I did a miracle for you in the past. Now I'm going to do a miracle against you. That's terrifying, isn't it? Look at what time he says he's going to bring a destroyer. At midday, I will bring a destroyer. You see, and any time there's warfare, any time there's an attack or an invasion, midday is kind of when you think you would be at your best chance to fight, right? Usually when somebody invades, they want to do it at night or early in the morning when it's dark because there's a little bit less tactical advantage for the defenders. But God is so bold to say that I'm going to bring them at midday. Even at the point where you can see what's going on, I'm going to bring them against you and you will fall. That's pretty terrifying. But there's a truth here that needs to be developed. In Psalm 91, verse 1 through 8, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. You see, if they had just dwelt in the shelter of the Most High, if they would have just listened, if they would have taken upon themselves to stay within the boundary boundary lines of where God had told them, they wouldn't have to be afraid of midday because they would be in His shadow. Mm. But now that's not going to work for them. At midday, they're going to attack. Verse 2 in Psalm 91 is beautiful. It says, I will say of the Lord... He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. But there's a problem here. They're refusing to trust in God, so they won't have a refuge or a fortress. They're going to be attacked at midday. Verse 3 says, Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. There's an interesting note that the LXX says that word plague there is demon. You won't fear the demon that attacks at midday. You won't fear the demon that just presents himself right in the open. You will have no fear. Look at verse 7 and tell me that this is not exactly written to the time that Jeremiah is in. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Man, it's almost like this is written for a people in a time of captivity. It's almost like this is written for a people who are surrounded by wickedness all around them. That if you would just trust in the Lord, if you would learn to rest in his shelter, then his shadow would envelop you. And you don't need to worry about midday. You don't need to worry about the night. You don't need to worry about the morning. You don't have to worry about anything because he is going to be covering you. There's another note here that's just quite interesting. That punishment in verse 8 of Psalm 91, it's recompense in the LXX. Where's our Acts 1, Acts 2 class? Reward and recompense? 
Look, those demons that are coming at midday, that, that recompense that is coming, when spiritual adultery is at play, there is always more at work than just external consequences. These destroyers that are coming in the time of Jeremiah, it's a result of a spiritual adultery, so spiritual powers are coming and attacking. If you want to see more on this, look at the Rephaim teaching. But the point is, church, if you would just learn to dwell in him, if you would allow him to be your refuge, if you would allow him to be your fortress and not build up defenses yourself, then you don't have to worry about any of these attacks. He has you covered. And that is exactly where Jeremiah is. Even though a destroyer is coming at midday, he doesn't have to worry at all because he is sheltered in the shadow of the Almighty. Amen? Amen. Hey, let's pick up in verse 9 and keep going. The mother of seven will grow faint and breathe her life. The mother of how many? mother of seven is going to grow faint. Let's keep going. Her son will sit while it is still day. She will be disgraced and humiliated. I will put the survivors to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. All right, so verse 9 is unique. There's a reason why. We went through the pattern of fours in verses 2 and 3 that we saw. We went through that pattern throughout the word. Verse 9 is like taking a magnifying glass into that pattern of four and looking at one of the particular details along the way of that pattern. One of the things that if you zoom all the way in, one of the things that you're going to be seeing in Israel as they go through that pattern is that the mother of seven, she's going to grow faint. Mm. She's going to breathe her last. Someone who was adorned with Righteous sons and generations, someone strong is going to become weak at the hands of an enemy. Her son is going to set while it's still day. Maybe like during midday, when there's supposed to be light, there will be darkness instead. And all the survivors will be put to the sword before their enemies. So what Jeremiah is doing in chapter 9 is he's laying out a picture, an example of one of the stages in this four-stage pattern and process that Israel is going through. Those who are many, they're now few because judgment is coming upon the land. When we heard about seven children, it reminded us of a particular passage in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we wanted to take you there to verse 4 on the screen. The bows of the warriors are broken. This is Hannah in 1 Samuel. But those who stumble are armed with strength. This prayer that Hannah is having, it's the antithesis. It's the hope. It is the desire. It is the righteous antithesis of everything that is happening and everything that Jeremiah is prophesying and saying. Those who were full hire themselves out for food. But those who were hungry, hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children. But she who has had many sons pines away. You see, the one who had seven in judgment, those seven are stripped from her. And she is stripped to nothing. But at the restoration of the remnant, when the Lord brings restoration to His people, even the barren women... They will have seven children and they will see the blessing of their God again. Verse 6. The Lord brings death and 
makes alive. We're in that process of death, but life is surely coming. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. We're seeing both of those sides. The first side, the negative side, the the hopeless side seemingly in the moment in Jeremiah's day. And we're seeing what hope looks like on the other side of that judgment. Verse 8. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. What do you think is going to be the requirement for the remnant of God that makes it out of captivity and back into the land of promise? Maybe it's something that Jesus preached about. Maybe it's his first sermon where he preached about being poor and needy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that know their need for the Father. Blessed are those that draw near to Him because they understand that they have nothing besides Him. You see, that's the very first step to getting restored as the remnant of God and coming into the promise of God. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Jump down to verse 10. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord, will, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Thousands of years before this happens. I mean, we're in, we're in 2021 AD right now. We're talking thousands of years before where we're sitting today. Hannah is looking at and prophesying about what is to come. A final Savior, a final man who will come and will restore all of Israel. The Lord himself is going to give strength to this Messiah. He's going to exalt the horn of his anointed. And she ends there because in this, Israel has hope. Come on. In this, Israel will experience victory. All of these points, they point to the desperate need for the coming of that victorious king Come on. at the culmination of the day. Come on. This world system, it will quite literally be turned upside down at the return of the king. When we pick up in verse 10, you contemplate the things that are not that God chooses to shame the wise. Alas, my mother, that you gave me birth, a man with whom the and continues. I have neither lent nor borrowed, yet everyone cursed. <laughs> All right, I love y'all, but I don't think you were really listening to that. This is Jeremiah's words, by the way. Alas! All right, nobody uses that verbiage anymore. <laughs> hey, my mother! That you gave me birth, a man with whom the whole land strives and contends. What the heck? Why did you give me birth? The entire land is striving against me. I've neither borrowed nor lent. I don't owe anybody money, and I'm not hitting anybody up for money. But they're treating me like a tax collector. Since we told you this is going to take patient endurance, you cannot resent the seed you were born to. You were born for this. 
Can you imagine why John sitting on Patmos might be taking encouragement when he reads the words of Jeremiah and he says it must take patient endurance? <laughs> Come on, let's put together some of this for me. Jeremiah, he watched men go into captivity, watched his friends go into captivity. Where is Daniel right now? Sitting in a palace, watching supernatural miracles, and he's becoming the counselor to a king. You know what Jeremiah's doing? He's prophesying the same old message with the people that hate him. Yeah. Going all the way to the point where he is old in age, at the end of his life expectancy, preaching the same exact thing. Amen. John the Apostle watched his friends get boiled in oil, watched his friends go on high. And you know what he's doing? Sitting on an island called Patmos. Old, scarred from his age and his time, the things that he has experienced. And he reads the words of Jeremiah and he adds to it, this requires patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Saints, we have to hear these words. Jeremiah is broken. He's broken over the tension between loving God and loving the people that he wishes would hear his message, but they are not. And he's getting a little upset about what he would have to endure. Man, this ought to remind you of the process with Job. Job refused. Somebody say refused. Refused. Talking about like shall, shall let, refuse. He refused to curse God. But what he did not refuse to do was curse the day that he was born. Yeah. Curse his mother for bringing him into this earth. Oh, that the womb was shut on me. <laughs> Jeremiah's not cursing God. He's saying, alas, my mother, what did you do to me? Why am I on this earth? Everybody hates me, and I'm preaching, and nothing is changing. It's that woman's fault. Look, it's God that is going to get the glory in the end of this story. God that will get the glory at the end of Jeremiah's life. He needs to learn what God's process is and to lean on him. He must find strength in God, but you're seeing the prophet in his moment of weakness. Doing everything that God is telling him to do, and yet he's crumbling on the inside. Oh, those of you that are expanding your ministry in every area. Come on. Why? Why? I thought things were good with my home. I, my wife just started doing well, and now you're pointing out something new. Ah, oh, I was doing good here, and then pastor has an instruction for me. Alas, everyone is contending with me. <laughs> what, did you think it would be easy to expand in ministry? Did you think your calling was not going to require increased sacrifice along with the call? Oh, come on. You guys are all shaking your head no. But did you honestly have some dreams about your calling? Like, man, I'm going to crush this. I can't wait till it happens because I was born to do this. Did you think everybody was going to nod their head and immediately say, thank you for showing us the way to be saved when you delivered your last message? Yeah. Yeah, well, we did too. The reality is. Be honest. This requires patient endurance on the part of the saints. God will get his glory any way that he sees fit. It's a Christian myth that your witness is solely that someone will be saved. Much of what you do is so that there is evidence on the day that God damns a man. You have to learn to be okay with that. It was never about the response that you got. It was about obedience to the call. Regretting the day that you were born... Now, let's be honest, you don't use those words, but you're standing exactly where God has told you to, prepping for the next meeting that he's called you to, and yet you're dreading it while you're doing it. This is regretting 
the birth of your call. You may not be cursing your mother, but your birth in Christ was for a purpose. Now, the lesson in Jeremiah's life and in Job's is that God has the right to get glory out of you, Christian, any way that he wants to. Come on. These are the days that we must reckon with the things that come along with your expanding ministry, that come along with what is ahead of you. You need to expect that God will point out more things, not less, in the next two weeks. If we cultivate the expectancy that we are going to find hidden areas of failure that you didn't know existed, maybe we can begin to approach them with the gratefulness that they were there the whole time and God is bringing us into a further revelation. Come on. Listen, there are enemies in our land that we just didn't know were there, but we're getting deep enough, far enough to cut their head off. View it like that and expect to be refined, and then we don't have to have the bemoaning that is going on because that's not just Jeremiah. Jeremiah is going to stand on top of this. The question is, will we? Now, there's one passage that we just got to look at. It's Esther 4, 12 through 14. Now, I want to read Esther 4. But when I do, I want you to imagine as if God were speaking this to you like Mordecai is speaking to Esther. I want you to picture yourself just like Esther. Maybe not just like if you're a man. (laughs) But in a situation where it seems like you are going to die if you move forward with what you're being told to do. In a situation where you feel like Like, it's going to take every ounce of courage that you can muster up, but even then, that might not be enough. Probably won't. It's going to force you through that narrow gate where things are going to have to come off of you as you enter in. Amen. I want you to put yourself in Esther's situation here. Esther 4.12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, which her words were kind of like, I don't think I can do this. I think someone else should do it because if it doesn't go right... The king will have my head. Mordecai sent back this answer in verse 13. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position. Say royal position. position. For such a time as this. Who knows, Christian, that you might have come to this royal position, this royal position of leading a group on Saturday night. Who knows, Christian, that you might have come to this royal position of becoming a husband in the coming months. Who knows, Christian, that you might have come to this royal position of growing in your discipleship and walking with the pastors daily for such a time as this. Who knows? Maybe God has something in store for you that might save the world all around you. The truth is, if you fail in this time, God will raise up someone else who won't quit until they have success. See, that other person is going to fight the same struggles that you fight But God will raise up another person who won't quit so that they would have success. See, the truth is, is your calling is not permanently yours. Your calling doesn't belong to you. 
God will get glory any way he sees fit. So if he tells you to endure, that is what you must do. That is your privilege to endure because that is the way God has selected for you to get glory. If God has chosen you to be the man that the Roman soldier says, hey, go with me two miles, then that is how God has selected you for glory. And if you don't fulfill it, God will raise up someone else. The answer is not to bemoan the situation God has given you. The answer is to lean into what he's already said. Hey, did God tell you that you're going to be a home group leader? Then you have to lean into it, not question it every time difficulty arises. Not question the validity of why God called you or do I really have what it takes. And let's not just talk to the home groups. Let's talk to every Christian in here who is called to be in this place and flourish. Flourish with the word that God has given you right now. It's not too hard. God has put you in this place for such a time as this. We're going to dig more into this and you're going to see Jeremiah. He's going to go to a place that we haven't seen him go yet. He's going to start... Arguing, arguing with God a little bit. But as we read, put yourself in the same situation as Jeremiah. He was called to never be married, called to never enjoy the frivolities of youth, called to never revel and sit with meddlers, called never to have the fellowship but to lean on God alone. I have to be honest with you, I would struggle in that situation too, wouldn't you? I would struggle if my message was to tell the same people the same thing and they're not listening. How many of you struggle with your kids? About a whole nation. A whole nation that God has called you to. And that nation is called to not listen because judgment is on them. Think about that for a second. What if God chose you to be like Ezekiel and said, I'm sending you to an obstinate people, but I'm going to make you just as obstinate as they are. (laughs) You see, we, we all want immediate success. We all want to just stand up and preach and everybody comes to the altar. But I got to tell you, real ministry is birthed when you put your you put your iron in the fire and God refines the iron inside your soul. That is when real ministry is birthed. So let's pick up in verse 11. I promise it's going to get good and then it's going to get better. And then you're going to see some things that will alter the calling for the rest of your life. Amen. Amen. The Lord said... Surely I will deliver you for a good purpose. Surely I will make your enemies plead with you in times of disaster and times of distress. Yeah, before we go on to verse 12, we we have to stop here at verse 11. Jeremiah is absolutely, he's pouring himself out and saying, Lord, why are people against me? Lord, why am I experiencing these things? Why is this happening? Why don't I have any friends? Why is your word bringing these things into my life? And the Lord in verse 11 (laughs) is way, way more compassionate and gracious than Jeremiah deserves. Way more. The goodness of God is pouring it out on Jeremiah. Hey, how many times have you been in that same situation? How many times have you found yourself (laughs) uh, bemoaning it? Oh, my goodness, I can't believe they talked to me that way. Oh, it's because I'm set apart for the work of God. (laughs) Well, maybe you didn't say that, but you did act it out. (laughs) I can't believe this. This is not what I signed up for. What did you sign up for? Then you get to that point where the Lord in His goodness and His mercy 
He didn't have to. Oh, but man. he meet you, met you in that place. Oh, man. And he encouraged you. He said something like, hey, you're going to go through this. Because you must. Because I'm making you into something. But trust me, I'm going to deliver you through it. Amen. I'm not going to deliver you outside of it. I'm going to deliver you through it. You're going to come out on the other side as something that is purified. Something that has been heated seven times over and that is getting perfected. I'm going to do this. And his presence and his comforting, merciful words, they get you just right out of the muck and mire. That's the goodness of God leading you to something. What does the goodness of God supposed to lead you to? The goodness of God leads us to repentance. Make sure that when his goodness is being poured out to you in those moments, you're not taking advantage of it. Taking advantage of staying in that place. Amen. As you experience God's goodness, that is a shift in you. God, you're way better to me right now than I deserve. I am going to repent immediately from this state of bemoaning, whining, complaining, bitterness, flesh that I am displaying right now. I'm going to do a 180 right now. And I'm going to pursue you. Yeah. Let's continue to read in verse 12. Can a man break iron? Iron from the north, or bronze, your wealth and your treasures, I will give as plunder without charge because of all your sins throughout your country. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know, for my anger will kindle a fire that will burn against you. You understand, O Lord. Remember me and care for me. Avenge me on my persecutors. You are long-suffering. Do not take me away. Think of how I suffer reproach for your sake. Oh, man. Jeremiah, avenge me on my persecutors, Lord. Is that ringing a bell for anybody? You see, Jeremiah, on a personal level, is crying out to the Lord right here, avenge me on my persecutors. Now, in Revelation 6, we have more than just one type of Jeremiah proclaiming and shouting the same thing. Listen to 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Patient endurance of the saints. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Oh my goodness. You mean to tell me that when we die, it's not just a zoop, oh, we're transported to the very end of time when we experience victory and everything is good. That's not what happens. There are souls that have been patiently enduring. And although their uh, moment for putting on the righteous acts, putting on those white robes, is past. They've been credited with that already because their life has proven it out. They are still waiting. Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? How long until you avenge the righteous blood of the saints? And their patient endurance continues to be on full display until that day when he does do it. You see, that character 
It's not just for this time. It carries on through an eternity because it's not just about character. It's about the character of God being birthed inside of you. We are going to be like him. Amen. Look, take heart in this moment. Iron, bronze, these things are going to come into play as we near the end of the chapter. But if God is still instructing those that have died and are with him for patience and endurance, telling them to take hold of it, he is able to help you with your own lack of it in this moment. In the great realm of those that are a cloud of witnesses around us, they're still being told, wait with patience and endurance. But the same God who's supernaturally supplying them can supernaturally supply you and clothe you in a linen garment. Come on. Pick up in verse 16. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. Man, I would love to read to you about Ezekiel or John or so many that have eaten of the words of God and responded with joy. But the reality is that the word of God, once consumed, becomes sour because of the effects that it will have. Jeremiah consumed the word of God, and then inside of his soul, inside of his stomach, is the wrath and the judgment that is coming upon the land. We have to have the resolve to eat the word. We are a church that is studious, that loves the word. We are growing more studious by the week. We have to accept what it brings because it brings God glory. I'm going to say it again because I want your eyes. Look at me. Your consumption of the word is beautiful. It must be received with joy. But more than that, you have to accept what the word of God will bring into your life. Come on. You need to expect it to bring division. To bring hostility, to bring you in contention with ancient hostile mountains. That your life looks like Jeremiah described in verse 10 with the entire land. The word of God is not here just to make you feel warm and fuzzy. It will bring you into the sufferings of Christ. And that was the point, that you would become like him. I'm going to read to you a couple passages. Exodus 14 10 through 18 is one. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done bringing us out to Egypt? Man, this call of God thing that brought me out of Egypt is getting hard. Why is this so difficult? Now this is a familiar passage for this church. But the more that God stretches you, expands your ministry, you will have these moments, and I know you've already had them. You know, this is actually the right application of the prayer of Jabez. Expand my tent, O Lord. Stretch me and drive me into more ground. This is what it looks like, Christian. Did we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Man, it was so much better when I didn't have so much responsibility, when God didn't demand so much of me, when I did not have so much weight. (laughs) Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. 
Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. I want to encourage you that the deliverance that you need is around the corner. There is no other path to it besides standing firm. Besides embracing the stretching that God is bringing about. Besides embracing the sourness of the word and its effects as it conforms you to the image of Christ. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need to be only still. Now these guys are going to run into a lot more enemies down the road. These were not the only enemies that were going to be put down. What you're experiencing today is not the only enemy that you will have to take heart in the Lord for. His word will cause you to come into conflict with many more that you just didn't know existed yet. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. It's almost as if God knew what his word would produce in his people. That it would bring them into conflict with Egypt. That it would bring them into conflict with the Red Sea. That it would bring them into conflict with giants that they had not heard of yet. God is bringing you into conflict through the word that he has given you. It's time that we embrace it. That we hear the call that God gave to Moses. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters. He also told them to tell the Israelites to move on. These are the days and the moments when you need to lift up your soul and say, Lord, help me to stretch out with the tools that you have given me. To look to those that you are responsible for and say, move on. We spent too much time here in Egypt. (laughs) And you're going to run into many places that were Egypt along your Christian walk. The longer that you stay there when God is telling you to move on, Egypt has a way of finding you. Decades can be spent in Egypt while sitting in a church. Stretch out and tell the people to move on. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. Saints, he never intended for you to make it out unscathed. He always intended for you to see the enemy in the face and his deliverance. This is what his word brings. He goes on to say, I will gain glory through Pharaoh. The point to the hardships, the point to the sourness of the word is that God will gain glory through it. Saints, we all would say we want to gain glory for God. It's time that we grip our own souls and realize what it will take for you to bring that about. You will have to face the whole land, consume the sourness of the word, receive it with joy, but know what it brings. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh. You want to see souls saved? This is how you see souls saved. This is how you see men discipled. This is how you look back after decades and see the fruit that these men have. It's by eating that word and receiving it with joy and standing your ground in the consequences. Man, you're setting something off that is powerful, that is not slow, that has an effect on the earth. When you choose to take your stand with the word of God, there is a reality, there is an effect, and if you haven't seen it, it's because you weren't actually standing with him. But we're beginning to. These are the days when men like Cody are going to teach the word from beginning to end and will raise up disciples who do the same. You know what that obviously necessitates? Pharaoh chasing after you. Coming into conflict with the enemy who doesn't like it. Were you looking to pay patty cake with the enemy or did you want to destroy the devil's work and build the kingdom of God? 
Consider Acts 9, 15 through 16. I'm going to summarize this passage, but I want you to just think about this when we're talking about eating the word. Man, Paul the Apostle was a fantastic teacher, right? I mean, he had revelation, right? He ate the word. Come on, are y'all with me? He ate the word. Well, imagine this being the first word he ever ate. Go! This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Man, what a good word, right? I'm called! Oh, I'm going to stand amongst kings. I am going to stand before the people of Israel. Man, I must be great, man. I got a calling under my belt. I'll eat that word. I'll eat it. Next word. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Man, you talk about the word becoming sour. I'm sure, I'm sure that song, Word of God Speak, was playing in the background when Paul received that. Right? Soft voices, Word of God Speak. I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. How many Christians will dare to eat a word like that? You see, just like Judah said, it is not those that are just good teachers of the word and understand the word. It is those that eat the word no matter how sour it is and they live it out to the point of death. You see, when the world, like Pharaoh and the Egyptians, just see you, you know, I got my word and I'm taking pictures with my coffee and my word and then Instagram and all that, it does nothing for the world. But when they see you suffering for the glory of Jesus Christ and they ask you, why are you doing that? It's because he spoke to me a word, and I will not let it go. I will do this. I will stand on the word. Think of John on the island of Patmos. Your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I was on the island of Patmos because I ate the word of God, and I have the testimony of Jesus. This is the result if you actually eat the word. If you just chew on it a little bit and spit it out, well, then you're just going to have a life that is spit out in the end by Jesus. But if you chew on it, if you eat it, no matter how difficult it is, you swallow it, let it get down inside you, and then you take its effect, man, it'll have an effect on you. You'll be a man of God that can stand in the face of persecution and say, this this affects me, yes, but I will choose to stand here no matter what because it gives God glory. If giving God glory is your main concern, then you would look at the word and you'd say, man, whatever it takes, I'm going to live it out. If your concern is your own glory, then you kind of just push back anything that causes you to suffer a little bit. Let's pick up in verse 17 and listen to how Jeremiah, he's going he's to kind of explain himself to God here. And listen to, how, listen to what he says and ask yourself, what he's saying is true. Have I gotten to the point where Jeremiah is? Have I actually done these things? Yeah, come on, let's learn from Jeremiah in these two verses here. We're coming to an end. I never sat in the company of rivers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me, and you had filled me with indignation. Oh, yeah, that's the reason why I was alone. Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? Will you be to me like a deceptive brook? Like a spring that fails? Yeah. Ooh. That's Jeremiah right there. Talking to the Lord. About the Lord being a deceptive brook. Like a spring that fails. 
That's not true. Nothing about what Jeremiah is saying is true. But can I tell you at the moment that he spoke those words, he thought maybe it was true. Maybe he got himself down that rabbit hole far enough where he (laughs) was deceived himself about the Lord's intentions and the Lord's actions toward him. Like this is this is a lot like Job, and we mentioned it earlier, but it's it's much of the same experience that Job had. Hey, Lord, I haven't sinned. So why am I experiencing this? You know what? It's not just something I'm experiencing out there. It's something that you are doing to me. Why are you doing this to me, Lord? Why? Why are you like a deceptive brook, like a spring that is failing on me? That that word those words deceptive brook. They might remind you of a prophet that came before Jeremiah. His name was Elijah. He was sent by the Lord to to the Kiriath Ravine so that he could have provision there by the water. But something happened when he got there. The brook dried up. Well, what the heck is it? What's up with that, Lord? Hey, you're the one that sent me over here. The brook dried up. Now how am I going to live? Where's my provision going to come through? What am I going to do? Don't you think that that temptation was there? Man, I heard your voice and I knew it. It's your fault. Doesn't that just make you cringe? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. What if what Jeremiah is doing right here, what if it comes from your own wrong expectations of what you're supposed to be seeing in front of you? Come on. You see, what if you heard the voice of the Lord correctly? You heard His direction... And by the time you got there, you had kind of built the world around it yourself. You built your own expectations of what it was going to look like, what it was going to feel like. And so it caused you to look at the Lord and say, the error is yours and not mine. You know, at the Kiriath Ravine, you know what happened? The brook dried up, but the Lord sent ravens with provision. And it brought glory to the name of God through that situation. It was a miraculous point of provision in Elijah's life. And it came only by the hand of God. Only the Lord could have done that. And he would have totally missed out on that. If he would have started pointing his finger in certain directions and had the wrong expectations. God is not a deceptive brook. Your wrong expectations... Are the deceptive brook. Come on. It's not turning out like Jeremiah had hoped because he had wrong expectations. God was not the one moving away from Jeremiah. It was Jeremiah who had wrong expectations causing him to move away from the Lord. I can see in some of your eyes, please hear what we're saying. Oh, hear me. God has brought you exactly where you're supposed to be. And the fact that it was more difficult than we imagined does not mean that we're not standing exactly where we're supposed to be. Yeah. Sometimes Amen. the cost is a little heavier than we expected. Yeah. But Jesus is worth it even if nothing yeah, yeah. else is. Yeah. In fact, the cost is proof that you're standing where you are supposed to be. We have no time left in like two verses. I, we're just not going to leave without actually addressing our family. Spite's voice, living with the Rosales, it's probably costing you more than you had imagined on a given evening. It is the right word to be eating. 
Hewitts. I can see God stretching your life, and I know what is ahead of you is going to be harder. God has placed you exactly where you're supposed to be. Yeah. Men of God in this house, prepare yourself and your family for what is ahead of you. Amen. God is going to baptize us in what is needed to make us into the men that we are called to be. And it will bear fruit, but it will come from the sweat of our brow and trust on our God. Now is the time for us to begin to prepare. Do not be caught off guard. We have wine presses that we've been trying to reap a harvest in, and God is saying, get out of the wine press out in the open country and let them see you. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 17. 19. 19, sorry. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. I'm going to walk you through a couple translations to give you a fuller understanding. But I want to start out by saying, do not utter Worthless words, but worthy ones. The hope that you, the change you want to see in the world around you, in your family, it begins with you. Come on. Choosing what is worthy in your free moments. Choosing what is worthy in your thoughts. You're hearing faithless words in your wife. You need to examine the worthless words that you've been considering in your own mind. Choose worthy words. You (laughs) must not turn to them. Remember this with family, whether it's a spouse, a mother, a friend. They have the opportunity to turn to you, but you do not bend and you do not break. Come on. I'm going to read to you the same verse in the NASB. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will restore you. Before me, you will stand. If you extract the precious from the worthless. Transformation starts with you. But when you stand uttering worthy words, he will equip you to extract the precious from the worthless around you. He will teach you how to find gold and silver, divinity and redemption, how to find the strength that you need, even iron and bronze. The LXX takes this a little further. It says, because of this, thus says the Lord, if you should return and I should restore you before my face, you shall stand. And if you should lead out the esteemed from the unworthy. What begins in you when you choose what is worthy instead of worthless will progress until the point where you know how to extract what is precious from what is not. The end result of this when you reckon with what God is speaking is that you will lead out those that are esteemed from the unworthy. This is what every man and woman in this room is called to what my nephew Elijah will do. Yes. But we have to honestly stand before God and put to death the unworthy words so that he can restore us. Come on. And there are some in the room, you are fighting for your own inadequacy, and that is a losing battle. What happens if you're right? God is calling you to more, calling you higher than you have ever walked in the past, but that is the nature of his word. It has gravity. It has mass. It has an effect. It was never meant to leave you the same. Previous years gone by where it did were because we were not ingesting it and accepting what came as a result of it. But today we take our stand, extracting the precious and leading out the esteemed. 
This is what you were made for. This is what you were born for. Come on. Let's get verse 20 and 21. I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you to rescue and save you, declares the Lord. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the cruel. So Jeremiah, amazing man of God has done some amazing things at this point, but he's found himself in a situation like many of you have found yourselves before. You've done some amazing things. God has grown your calling and your life, and you're being faced with a situation where you have to repent now. <laughs> you're leaning, you're looking at what you've done in the past, and God is pointing you. You have got to change now. You've changed in the past, but it has to happen again. And God's telling him, you must repent. Now in verse 20 and 21, he's telling you, I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. Now that might sound incredible to you, but there's something you're missing here. God has already told him that in Jeremiah 1.18. In the beginning of his calling, God told Jeremiah, today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land. Against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. God already told Jeremiah, I have already made you this, and this is what will happen. And now God is urging him, you must repent. And then after you repent, I will make you into what you were originally called to do. I will restore your original calling. I will restore the word that I spoke to you previously. But it's going to come after a transformation. The truth we have to all grapple with is that at the cross, we were credited with something. We were credited with righteousness. We were credited with a calling. We were credited with a mezuzah. But as you walk, you have to be made into what you were credited with. You have to be transformed over and over. How many times does the word say... Be renewed. You have to be renewed over and over, even after being made new the first time. You have to be renewed continually. In verse 20, it says, I will make you a wall to this people. We're going to go ahead and stand. We're going to close here. God already told Jeremiah that he was a wall. Now he's having to be remade into that same wall. You know how you rebuild your walls? What's written all into the Torah? You have to rip out the moldy bricks that you find as you're building in repentance. I.e., you have to be transformed. And that is the one thing we all want to fight against, honestly. Like Jeremiah, we want to look back and say, but I have not done these things. I haven't. I've done this. Lord, I have done this. But God is funneling Jeremiah yet again into another direction, and it's called transformation. You see, something happens, and I'm just going to speak honestly. Something happens to us Christians after we've been in the faith for a little while. We don't think we have to be transformed anymore. We think that everything's done. We think, I've been transformed then. I was transformed. Do I really have to go through the process of eating your word again, Lord? 
Do I really have to go through the process of tearing down what I've built and rebuild it? And the answer is yes. Paul said the same thing. If I tear down what I've built and I rebuild it, that would be building with costly stones and not moldy bricks. The truth is, none of us in this room have arrived yet. That ought to be a comforting thought. I haven't arrived. Judah hasn't arrived. Nick hasn't arrived. Elder Charlie hasn't arrived. Bosch hasn't arrived. The pastors have not arrived yet. And you haven't either. So stop thinking like you've arrived. Accept the fact that we all have to be transformed and renewed every day. We all have to be transformed in those moments that are crushing. We can't be defensive and push back. We have to accept the fact that even though God has done some amazing things in our life, we're still as good as dead unless he is renewing us daily. That resurrection life that the pastors preached on yesterday, if that is not occurring daily, then you have got to be renewed every single opportunity the Lord presents for you. I don't know if this hits you like it did me. This could not be a better word for tonight. Uh, Beth, put up verse 16 of chapter 15. Great job, men. Thank you. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. The idea of the bitterness that's caused from that and the resolve. Everybody say resolve. Resolve. These men said it perfectly. You need to have resolve that we're going to accept the word of God and digest it with great joy and then not have wrong expectations. It's not just a book from the 1800s by Charles Dickens that says great expectations. It's oftentimes what we actually feel about our own expectations. We're expecting ourselves to digest the word and it produce something, usually our own greatness, usually success in the shortest possible manner. What you should be hearing from what God is saying and what he said tonight, isn't God so good to us? Yes. He's constantly repeating the same thing. He's constantly trying to get us away from our own great expectations and move us towards what the Word of God actually wants to do, which is to draw the enemy out into battle and use you to do it. Amen. Expectations of what it should be are your enemy. Having the resolve. Everybody say resolve. Resolve. Ah, that stirred something in me when these men were talking about the resolve to digest the word and not put your own expectation on it. My goodness, this is a good word for you. My goodness, this is a good word for me. God is calling us up. He's calling us up and you have to go possess the land that he's given you. Which means to possess you must dispossess the ones that are already there. Get away from the idea that when you possess what God has for you, it just means you get to walk up because no one else is going to fight you for it. That's wrong. It's sinful. 
I'm telling you now, these men have said it eloquently tonight. It's going to take a fight. But that is part of what God is doing, and that is part of the Word, because He's already made you into something. Our response tonight is to repent and to become what He's already said. Amen. Setting aside our expectations. Not allowing the bitterness of a situation to sour you towards what He has spoken and put inside of you. Amen. Man, what a good word we had tonight. Amen. So let's do this. Let's take the opportunity to act upon this word, trusting that this is part of our daily bread. The expectation that when we eat God's word, the first thing it's going to contend with is our own <clears throat> sinful nature. And then when that is dealt with, and we're restored to our original call, we can then go contend with the celestial oppositions and do it with joy. So we're going to pray. Altar is going to be open. We're going to take action to exchange our expectations and exchange our expectations with the right, repentive direction that we receive from the Lord. And expect... God's restorative joy to fill you with the original call afterwards. Amen? Amen. Amen.